Okay, you ready? The, the wordeth of the Lordeth cometh fortheth, and Jesus its nameth. Amen. <laughs> wow. That was a really holy prayer. The King James makes it more holy. I think that was in your booklet, wasn't it, April? Prophesy in the King James Version, right? <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I, our, our Fire Kids, the kids' church program is awesome. We have Kim Stecker who leads it. She does an amazing job. Trisha, I, it's always a, a mixed blessing because she uh, helps every once in a while, and it's awesome for the kids, but it's so sad for me. <laughs> Bye, Trisha. She's like my cheerleader. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> how are you guys doing? Okay, well, <laughs> Holy Ghost. Oh, God is so good. Mm. Well, if you are new here or if you haven't been here for a while, we are in the middle of a series, and um, this series has really been an extension, if you've been here for a while, of the Kingdom of God series, and, and we'll kind of be, like, that was a foundation for what we're talking about, and we'll get into that more another time, but um, today what I wanted to do is, this is going to be a, it's, uh, you'll see, if, you, if you've been here before, there'll be a little bit of review, but I want to I hit on a few things and, uh, you know, look at things from a few different angles, because there's some things that I think should be emphasized, because sometimes you want to, uh, you have to ask the question, why are we listening to your message? <laughs> why are you talking so much about the Holy Spirit? And that's a valid question. And I want to sort of hit on that today, though I have here and there before. I want to hit on that more today. Um, so this is just what we're doing today. Uh, I, I want to give you three urgencies uh, that I have about the Holy Spirit. Jen, uh, can you go to the next slide? Thanks. Uh, it's really simple. Three urgencies I have about the Holy Spirit in this series. Okay, so I really actually just want to make this really clear so that we can have this uh, you know, at the back of our minds when we're learning about this stuff. Okay, yeah, this is why we're learning about this stuff. Um, and this is, a lot of it you'll see is my opinion, but I think hopefully you'll agree with me uh, once I tell you what I'm about to talk about. But also, practical application to our church um, is, is always important. Okay, here's the practical application. Because we don't want to do theology for theology's sake. We don't want to just get a bunch of head knowledge and be like, oh, I know that. Because that gets, that gets dangerous, really, you know. In fact, Paul says knowledge puffs up. And so we don't want to seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. In fact, that was the heresy that the Corinthians got into. They, they, they so esteemed wisdom and knowledge that they were, there was divisions being created among them. And you see this threaded throughout the book of Corinthians. Paul had to hammer that home and say, guys, you have wisdom so mixed up, it's not even funny. You are defining wisdom by this world's standards. But you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is the cross. Wisdom is foolishness to humans. He, <laughs> he actually calls the cross. He says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. But we preach Christ crucified. It's, in other words, God's wisdom is foolishness to humans. Okay, so they're getting so caught up in knowledge and wisdom, and that can get you off track big time. So we don't want to get off track getting all into knowledge and wisdom and all that stuff, earthly wisdom. We want to get into the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. And it's no mistake that when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, the first two gifts of the Spirit he lists are wisdom and knowledge. Okay, because that was the things that they were, they, he had to correct them and say, look, these are genuine gifts of the Spirit. You guys are totally off. <laughs> on what, how you're defining it, okay? But there is a genuine knowledge and wisdom that comes to the Lord. Anyway, that was for free. Um, let's move on. So what I want to do is go over three urgencies I have in this series. And there's, there's a, I'm sorry, I, these are my notes and also what I put up there. So there's sometimes a lot of words. So don't feel like you have to read them. It's actually for my sake. But, but I just post them there for you too if you want. So you can just, whatever you feel. But anyway, my first urgency in this series really is that Christian theology in general. Now, I'm, I'm talking in scholarship. I'm talking in the parish, uh, just, just in general, okay? So across the board, I would be so bold to say that, um, that there has been, an, uh, the, uh, sorry, Christian, uh, has neglected the central and crucial role that the Spirit played in the life and theology of the early church and that of the New Testament writers, okay? Almost virtually ignored the Holy Spirit. 
And this is really problematic. Like, it's really kind of interesting. Like, you'll see whole books of theology on Paul the Apostle's theology, and there'll be like one page on the Holy Spirit. When it's like, whoa, that is, that says a lot. Because <laughs> the Holy Spirit's all over the place in Paul, and they relegate it to one page. And it's like, you guys are clearly missing it. Like, the Holy Spirit played a, played a crucial role, and I'm going to show you that, in New Testament theology, in the early church, um, but unfortunately, uh, within Christian theology, the role of the Spirit has often been given short shrift and has been left to the periphery. Okay, like just neglected essentially. Now, what I want to do without, I, I'm going to just say some things and ha- let them hang there because this isn't what I want to emphasize. But I do want to just show you the Spirit pray, plays a crucial role in, our, in the central aspects of our theology. Okay, so um, I, I'm hoping I can just say these things and you'll be like, okay. And, and later on in life, I'll elaborate on these things. So if you're like, what? I'll be like, don't worry. Listen some other day and you'll get it. But if you guys have been here for a while, this one you will know, especially if you're here for the Kingdom of God series. I've said this like in so many ways, so many different times. Hopefully this even goes without saying. But the Spirit is the key to the eschatological framework which is the essential framework of the entire New Testament, the essential framework, the already not yet kingdom of God, okay? And if you guys remember, I'll just say this, because there's some of you who weren't here, though two things, especially the one thing that the Jewish messianic expectations had of the end times, the eschaton, was that the spirit was going to come back. That was the one sign to them that the kingdom of God was here. And that's exactly why when John the Baptist was prophesying about Jesus, he said he's going to come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. Because they knew when the Holy Spirit came back, that meant that the kingdom of God was here. So what happened on Pentecost? We all know it. They get blasted, speaking in tongues, and everyone's like bewildered. And you know what Peter says, he, def- he interprets it, he said, this is to fulfill what was spoken by Joel the prophet, in my last days, the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God's here, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, sons and daughters prophesy, you know it. Why was that significant? Because the spirit being poured out was the one thing they knew the last days were here. That's what I mean by the eschatological perspective, the already not yet. The second thing was the resurrection of Christ. And, and again, I'm leaving that hanging, and we'll talk about that more in life. But if you're interested, you can go back to the Kingdom of God series and hear more on that. The second is the Spirit is the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ, which is the central issue, arguably, of the New Testament. Salvation in Christ, okay? Redeemed for glory. The, 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 Christ is central, but the Holy Spirit plays such a crucial role in our salvation, it's not even funny. Think about this. You're born again by what? The Spirit. We are born again by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who redeems us. The experiential aspect of all salvation is through the Spirit. Okay? And so, but, but you often don't even hear that. But uh, someday I'll talk all about that. Okay? Um, the Spirit is the key to what it means for us to become the people of God, which is arguably the ultimate goal of redemption. That God is creating a people for his name. Okay? He's, uh, okay, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say something offensive, potentially, but I won't. <laughs> I'll just have you wonder what I was going to say. Sometimes it's wisdom not to say what you're going to say. But, the, but re- in reality, from beginning to end, God is creating a people for his name. And that's what the church is all about. God is creating a people for his, does that make sense? Or, okay. And the Spirit plays a central role to that, what it means to become the people of God. We'll talk about that someday. The Spirit is also crucial in terms of the New Testament. Uh, the new, it was a new understanding of God that emerged in the early church. Now, I kind of alluded to this when I talked about eschatology, but the new understanding resulted from their experience of Christ and the Spirit. Okay, remember, Spirit came. That was the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Then the resurrection of Christ. Those two things determined the consummation. Those two things were evidence that that end times have broken in. We're in the last days. Now we're waiting for the final consummation at the second coming of Christ. Because the resurrection, those two things are what they were waiting for. The spirit coming back and the resurrection of Christ. Or the resurrection of the dead. But because Jesus already raised from the dead, that was evidence that it already started. We just haven't, it just hasn't been consummated completely yet. 
But the point is this new understanding resulted from their experience of Christ and the Spirit so that the church became Trinitarian in its understanding of the one God. Crucial, right? Now, you, know, you won't see the word Trinity in the Bible because it's not there. People, later Christians trying to understand New Testament theology gave that word to understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? And we've been grappling with that ever since. But the point is, the Spirit and Christ, of course, created a radical shift in people's understanding of God. Understandably, right? How do you reconcile that with one God? Now, I'm not even going to go there. But the point is, the Spirit was crucial to the early church's theology, Crucial and experience. Okay, those are just four fundamental things that are essential for our faith that I want to show. The, the Spirit's crucial in all four, okay? So the Spirit is at the heart of everything in New Testament theology. Okay, but I do want to say this because when you're, when inevitably, when you're doing a series on the Spirit, um, we're talking about the Spirit all the time. I don't want you to think that it, I'm saying it's all about the Spirit. It's not, right? Jesus is always and forever the center of our faith, okay? Yeah? So, so, so the Spirit's not the central matter. It's not salvation in the Spirit. It's salvation in Christ. We all know that, right? But the Spirit is right next to Christ at the very center of New Testament theology and our experience of God. So it's so important that we have a foundation of who the Holy Spirit is and the role he plays, right? In our, our, not only our theology, but in our beliefs, in the way we walk out life, everything. So, and, so all that to say, this is what we're going to try to set out to demonstrate and work towards in this Spirit series. Does that make sense? To, to just give you guys more of a, because in my opinion, it's been neglected a lot, the theology of the Spirit, um, giving us a foundation and, and, and to show you how crucial the Holy Spirit plays in our walk with God. Crucial. Super crucial. So um, why does theology matter? I just want to say this. So I, I said this before, but I want to say it again because in the final analysis, um, we walk out what we most truly believe. Okay, and that's why there needs to be more thoughtful reflection on theology all the time. It's so important that we actually consider theology because if you have, how many of you know, if you have wrong theology, you're going to get off. You're going to get off. Like, you know, if you, if you uh, think God is going to smite you if you make a mistake, every time you make a little mistake, you're going to be scared of God and that's going to totally hinder how you relate to him intimately if you're scared of him, right? So having a proper and right understanding of God is crucial for how we live our walk with the Lord. Um, and because there's been so many misunderstandings about the Spirit, it's crucial that we spend some time reflecting on theology of the Spirit. But not, um, I said this earlier, not theology for theology's sake, but is the proper basis for all Christian life and behavior. Beliefs matter. Like I said, you're going to walk out what you believe inevitably. Just, just psychologically, that's a truth, but I'm talking about spiritually as well. Um, and so, the, so this is why teaching matters, you know, like actually learning this stuff matters. It's, it's a, that, that's why God has put teachers in the body of Christ, because it's crucial that in order to walk the life that he's called us to, that we have a proper understanding of him, uh, you know. And so it's, it's actually an important thing to consider theology. But why does proper theology of the Spirit matter? I kind of already said this, but I want to say this in a different way, and, and, and I'm giving general statements here. Okay, but generally, and I think you probably would all agree, there's been a, a quiescent attitude towards the spirit where the spirit is technically believed in. Like you ask any Christian, okay, do you believe in the spirit? Everyone would say, yeah, of course I do. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's in the Bible, right? But the spirit has kept at a safe distance in our creeds and theology. So yeah, yeah, I believe in the spirit. I believe in the spirit. Right? We technically believe in the Spirit, but he's totally ignored and neglected for the most part. So theological confession is one thing, <laughs> but a practical realization of the truth we confess is quite another. And I'm going to show you this quote I love from Rick Joyner. We can no longer merely believe that the things written in the Bible are true, which is, you know, what we've been told all our lives. Just believe it's true. That's one thing. 
But true faith in the Bible is faith to experience what is written for our present life. Does that make sense? We're not, and I think a way of saying it differently is it's not about head knowledge. It's about actually walking out what the Bible says. Go figure, right? Like, believe it or not, we're supposed to be walking like the early church in the book of Acts. And then some. You know, it wasn't just for them in those days. We're supposed to, true faith is experiencing all of that in our present time. So we need to be, true faith is experienced what we believe. So it's not enough to say, yeah, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not enough. Because that's, that's not how, head knowledge is not, relationship, biblically speaking, in Hebrew and Greek, knowledge to know someone is more than head knowledge. The difference would be reading a biography of someone versus knowing the person, right? Like we could read a biography about, eh, who's somebody? Justin Bieber. <laughs> that was a funny example. But anyway, I, I just, whatever. But Justin Bieber. <laughs> but wouldn't it be way cooler, maybe not, in this crowd, but to some people to actually know Bieber personally rather than through an autobiography? Think about the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit's book. Okay, so some people make it Father, Son, Holy Bible when he calls us to relationship with the Holy Spirit. And you guys all know I love the Bible. Every Sunday I inundate you with multiple scriptures to make my points. But I would think about this. The first 300 years of the church did not have a Bible. They had the Old Testament. They did pretty well, didn't they? (laughs) Because we've relied so much on, you know, uh, our understanding of the Bible and totally, okay, we don't need the Holy Spirit to figure this out, but we do. It's so crucial, okay? So, the experienced life of the Spirit, and I think we'll relate to this, is something that many contemporary Christians are skeptical or nervous about. The experienced life. I mean, uh, us in Catch the Fire knows this all too well. <laughs> We get a lot of slack from people who are like, really don't get encountering God. And they're like, man, you're putting experience way too much over, uh, you know, whatever, the Bible or whatever. I'm going to show you biblically that's actually the Bible way of doing it, is experience first. I'll leave that hanging till later. But it's true. Okay? God sent his Holy Spirit for a reason. We can have that intimate relationship with God that was lost in the garden. And if you were here, the second message I preached about was the restoration of the lost presence of God going all the way from Genesis to the end of the Bible, showing the significance of what it meant that the Holy Spirit came back. The presence of God came back among his people. And that's awesome. And we actually have the privilege of living that life out intimately with God, his very own personal presence. And it's a tragedy that we've neglected that relationship. It's a tragedy. So um, the, I believe sometimes the reason, like, let me give you an example. I know John Wimber used to give a lot of, get a lot of slack about this uh, from uh, more conservative evangelicals who would say, you are putting experience first over theology. In other words, you, are, you, are, you, are put, you, you have it backwards, right? You're trying to use the Bible to help explain the experience you're having. But <laughs> that's actually the Bible way of doing it. Experience first and then understanding. But again, I'll show you that later if you're nervous. So this is, this is sometimes due to theological understanding, this nervousness that people have. Uh, we talked about this last time I spoke. That was, what, three weeks ago? That, that uh, if you believe the Holy Spirit is an it, like an impersonal, f- intangible force and not a person, how many of us going to influence how you see him? You're not going to relate to an it. You're not going to relate to fire. How can you relate to fire? That's just a metaphor for how he acts. It, it would be like, you know, Jesus is technically the line of Judah, but that's a metaphor. He's not literally a lion. Does that make sense? Same with all these metaphors that are used by the Spirit. And unfortunately, because they're impersonal images like fire, wind, water, oil, people have a trouble relating to the Holy Spirit and just think he's some kind of it. And they don't even consider that he's a person. But it's so important knowing he's a person because if you don't know that, you're not going to develop that relationship. You're going to, uh, you know, have him at arm's length, 
right? So it's so important to know that he is not an it. He's a person. You can have a, an amazing relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's awesome. Okay, so that gets into my second urgency. <laughs> the first urgency was this theology, okay? The second urgency is that the key to this generally, what I'm saying, quiescent attitude towards the Spirit lies, first of all, in our failure to take seriously Spirit as a person. And I already said that, and I spoke about this before, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this. If you're interested, you can listen to my last sermon. But what I want to say is the language spirit has this kind of fuzziness to it that causes most people to think in terms of an impersonal force or influence or some kind of intangible something, right? We relegate the spirit to the gifts. <laughs> that's like a fraction of percentage of what the ministry of the spirit is all about, life in the spirit, right? But anyway, the inclination then is to think of him as an it, as a force, not as a person. Um, and I, I gave you this quote. This is from a Pentecostal student at a Pentecostal college being honest and saying, God the Father, I understand. Christ the Son, I know. But the Holy Spirit is a gray oblong blur. I mean, that probably explains how, how a lot of Christians feel about the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is basically shatter that and, and, and hopefully through this series facilitate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because life in the Spirit is crucial uh, to our walk with God. It's absolutely crucial. Uh, as we'll see as we pro progress in the series. Um, so, uh, I already said this, but it's that reality that lies at the heart of this generally quiescent attitude that the later church developed. So this is a general consensus, unfortunately, in the church. Okay? The Holy Spirit is just this quiet force that produces fruit in us, and we don't really, you know, like... Uh, but the, now, this is where the early church, however... And the New Testament writers, the Spirit was no other than God's personal presence. And we talked all about this last time, okay? But that is crucial. It's actually God. Believe it or not, the Holy Spirit is God. And so people get nervous about talking to the Holy Spirit, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, when, they, when in Acts, they talk to the Holy Spirit all the time. It, talked about, it says over and over again, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said this. And it seemed right to us in the Holy Spirit. Like, it was, it was clear they had this intimate relationship with him. Um, but now we don't think of him in terms of that, right? And so, um, but we have to, we have to sh if we need to recalibrate, yeah, he is God and we relate to him as God. He's not some force. God is personally present, not in some windy way blowing upon people, but he's personally present. It's God himself. So when we feel the Holy Spirit, when he's present, it's actually God himself present with us. It's a phenomenal thing. My goodness, it's amazing. Now, my third urgency is that for the New Testament church precisely, we talked about this last time, but precisely because the Spirit meant God's personal presence, they also thought of the Spirit as God, uh, the presence of God's power. So, so, when the Holy Spirit is present, there's power precisely because God is powerful. He's almighty God. Whatever else they thought of God, it was that he was powerful. He was the mighty one of Israel. So, of course, when he shows up, there's power, right? Does that make sense? That's just how they thought of it. God is here. He power is here. But for some reason, most churches think of our people these days think of the Holy Spirit when he's here as some kind of uh, still small voice. <laughs> <laughs> when the Holy, just look at Acts chapter 2. Fire, wind, earth. I'm getting ahead of myself, but power. <laughs> That's how the early church thought of them. And last time I talked about this, showed you a bunch of scriptures. But um, th th for some reason, and I want to say this, and I'm going to show you this, because for some reason there's this, uh, and this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, when people take isolated scriptures from wherever and they use it as a general principle to base their theology off of, it's really not a good thing to do. And this is one of them, in my, I would argue, okay? So for some reason, and I, I kind of alluded to this already, people, uh, later Christians developed this view of the Spirit that's like the Elijah experience on Mark, Mount Carmel. And this is not the New Testament experience. This is not. In fact, it's like the opposite. But for some reason, people take this isolated scripture and say, okay, this is how the Holy Spirit is. Okay? And I'm going to just show you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to go back here. 1 Kings 19, 11 to 12. This is Elijah. This is the only time in the Bible that ever says anything even close to this. It's not even talking about the Holy Spirit. So, so I'll just go on. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
Okay? And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice is how he spoke to Elijah. And that's great, but that was one time in the history of mankind he ever did that. Right? Like, we don't have any other instances where it says that ever in the Bible, especially not in the New Testament. So this is like an odd passage. If you think about it, this is an odd passage to develop a theology of the Spirit, isn't it? Taking this kind of obscure passage from the Old Testament, okay, this is how the Holy Spirit always operates. But that's the general consensus, and that's why I'm hammering this home. Like, I, I have nothing against still small voice, but, like, how many of you see that's problematic? Taking just a scripture that how one time God spoke to Elijah in this one specific way, and then we create this whole theology out of it. And it totally, the New Testament totally stands over against that. That's the problem. Like, if we didn't have any other evidence that he operated in other ways, that'd be fine. But it's totally actually opposite is what I'm going to show you. Okay, so it's totally on New Testament. Now, I, I'm going to show you this. Just look at Acts 2. And it's the opposite when the Holy Spirit shows up. It's actually the opposite. He's in the fire. He's in the wind. He's in the earthquake. Okay? Look at this. When the day of Pentecost came, when they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound like a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Literally, it looked like fire. That separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then look at this. Just a couple chapters later in Acts, they're praying, okay? They're praying for boldness. And look what happens. Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. There's the earthquake. It was literally shaken, okay? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit should have place shaken. And they spoke the word of God boldly. Okay, what I want to just point out, like I already said, this is opposite, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit shows up in the New Testament, it is earthquake, it's fire, it's wind. Not, I don't see still small voice once here, do you? And I'm just trying to, right, because this is so normal. I've heard this all my life. <laughs> but how many of you know, the first message I gave here and I did a video blog on this too, is the importance of raising our expectations. This goes along with beliefs. If we're ex only expecting God to speak as a still small voice, how many know that's all he's going to speak for the most part? Why? Because that's where our faith is. Does that make sense? If we have beliefs, if we've been told our whole life, okay, the Holy Spirit, this is how he operates. That's what we're expecting. Why not expect the New Testament ministry? Why not expect earthquake, fire, and wind? Because really, if we're going to take a scripture to base our theology off of, wouldn't it make sense to go to a, a, a clear scripture about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? So why don't we expect that? Precisely because we don't expect that. Like I said, the quiescent attitude towards the Spirit, right? But if we raised our expectations, you guys, guess what? When the Holy Spirit comes up, fire. Wind. <laughs> earthquake. Imagine that. Why not believe for that? Why not believe New Testament scriptures about the Spirit and base our theology off that? Just because we haven't experienced it, how many of you know that's problematic? If we base our theology off of our experience, in this case, lack of experience, how many of you see that's problematic? That's where a lot of heresies come in. That's where God doesn't heal anymore came in. Why? Because in fact, the biggest proponent of this, who, who created this idea that it passed away with the apostles, was a theologian, and his wife died of cancer, and then he came with this idea, well, God doesn't heal anymore. Now, that's tragic. But to say God doesn't heal anymore because my wife wasn't healed, how many say it's problematic? And now a whole generation of conservative, uh, lots of people who are in conservative evangelical don't believe God heals anymore, and that's so unscriptural. Just look at Jesus. That's like his main ministry. Right? And you see how that's problematic. If you believe God doesn't heal, how many know God's not going to heal when you lay hands on the sick? Because you believe that. Faith is so important. So it's crucial for us to believe, okay, this is what the Bible says when the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Let's just believe for that. I'm just encouraging us. Let's believe for that because that's the New Testament way. Let's not take isolated scriptures, obscure scriptures in the Old Testament and say this is how the Holy, Holy Spirit operates when it wasn't even about the Holy Spirit. He spoke to... Why not take other crazy scriptures from the Old Testament and say this is how the Holy Spirit operates? You know, <laughs> like how he spoke to Ezekiel, wheels within wheels, and say that's what the Holy Spirit's like. Because that was about the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, I'm probably on this too long. 
But, but there's a reason I'm on that long, because how many of you heard the still small voice thing? Yeah, and no shame, because I have my whole life. But then when you actually think about it, it's like, why, why, are we, why are we just doing that? Like, let's go to the New Testament for how we relate to the Spirit. And that's precisely why I'm hammering home the Spirit series, okay? Because there's a lot of uh, erroneous ideas out there that if you just think about it, what the Bible says can address that and be like, okay, now we have faith scripturally for how the Holy Spirit's going to show up, and it's going to be crazy, Okay, <laughs> anyway, um, so the early church wouldn't have understand our later ideas about this quiescent spirit, that he's this quiet, blowy little wind that comes in sometimes. No way. Spirit equals power. They knew that when God was present, there was power present, period. And I, I give, I've given you so many scriptures showing that before. Now, what I want to say, I got to say this. <laughs> it doesn't always have to look like fire and wind and the rest of it. Okay, <laughs> of course. Just because of no fire and people aren't running around in fire doesn't mean he's not here. He's here. He's here right now. Okay? So it doesn't have to look like that. I'm just saying, if we're going to base our ideas off of how he looks, let's go to the New Testament. That was my point. Now, there's a radical middle here. Sometimes it's power to endure hardship. Right? That's New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 12. But... So, so power doesn't mean it has to look a certain way. I just want to expect for the way that's New Testament. But sometimes people grovel in their hardships just precisely because they don't expect the Spirit to help them because they don't believe he's working powerfully so, in our situation. So it's important to have right beliefs in that sense too. Um, so I have to say that. But the key point is the early church understood God's presence to mean the power of God present with them. And this, now, uh, the, the difference between them and us lies in this latter reality, I would argue. We look at the uh, Acts, early church, and envy, and why isn't it like that in our day, right? I believe this is one of the reasons. And it comes back to theology. If we believe he doesn't do that anymore, he's not going to do that anymore. Now, sometimes he's sovereign, so sometimes he does crazy stuff. Like we know in Toronto, he just, bam. But why not base it off <laughs> that is the norm when he comes and crazy things happen because he's all powerful rather than he doesn't usually do that. And that's where we go, right? Usually. So anyway, you can see this in Paul's writings and to his churches. And this, I want to give you one example. I've alluded to this a whole bunch because this blows my mind, this portion of scripture. It's so interesting how Paul argues. He does it totally different than we would. I'm going to show you that. He actually argues based off of experiencing the Holy Spirit before he does theology. We do it backwards, and then we get criticized when we, when we base it off experience. That's how Paul operated. Why? Because you can't argue with an encounter. You encounter God, and you speak in tongues, and someone tells you tongues isn't for today. You, it's too late, right? You can't, I can't, you know, it's too late, buddy. I've encountered it. Like, you can't argue with that. And so that's why a lot of times we have to believe God that he's going to encounter people because that's what changes lives. That's what changed my life. But I want to show you scripturally, and you look at, you look at most uh, uh, commentaries on Galatians, ignore this verse. And this is the, this is the, this is the crux of the, of the whole book of Galatians. It's Galatians 3, 1 to 5. And everything the rest of Galatians is actually predicated on this. Okay? So I'm going to just go through verse by verse 2, 3, 4, 5 to show you this. How Paul argues. It's crazy. He starts by appealing to their experience. Okay. And, and this is the point I make. You see how powerfully present the Spirit was in the early church when Paul's appealing to the Galatians about not having to come under the obligations of law. How does he do it? He doesn't give all these uh, propositions and theological arguments. He says, hey guys, did you encounter the Spirit by believing what you heard or by doing works of the law? Oh, wait a minute. You have a point there, Paul. <laughs> it wasn't by works of the law. It's by believing what we heard. Okay, I'll just show you. I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway... Um, here we go. Acts, oh, so, so Galatians, I'm just starting in 3-2. Look at this. Let me ask you, after he, he just chastised him for the first two, two <laughs> chapters, Galatians is wild. Paul, Paul, if you want to have an interesting read, just read the book of Galatians. And it's crucial. In fact, Martin Luther said he was married to that book because it's so crucial and foundational in our walk that we're not saved by works but by grace. But anyway, look at that. After he just royally rebukes 
he tells a story about how he stood up in front of everyone and rebuked Peter. <laughs> oh, okay, I got to stay on track. But he rebuked Peter and he gave him this royal rebuke. And then he goes to the Galatians and he's, let me ask you only this. Did, look at this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive, do you know what's interesting about this? This is Paul's way of asking, were you saved? Paul doesn't, he rarely asks that. This is how he asks if you were saved. Did you receive the Spirit? Think about it. We would ask today, were you saved by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Not Paul. Did you receive the Spirit? Okay, that's the ultimate question of conversion. Remember, we're born again by the Spirit. So he's referring to their coming into salvation in Christ, yet he doesn't appeal to what they believe. Think about that. He doesn't get, go, go into theology and propositions. No, did you receive the Spirit? He appeals to what they experience. Their powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit is what he appeals to. Okay? So not what did you believe about all this, did you receive the Spirit? And he's referring to coming to Christ. That's clear in verse 1. Okay? But the point is, he's not appealing to justification by faith. Even though that's what he's referring to, he's, he's referring to their encounter. But look at this. He goes on. Are you so foolish? Notice the questions. He's, he's giving these rhetorical questions. Are you so foolish? In fact, the Greek word here says, are you without a mind? <laughs> are you without a mind? After, be, look at this, beginning by means of the Spirit, referring to their conversion, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And this is an interesting thing he does here. Because he's playing on words here. He's, he's alluding to circumcision, so literally flesh. But what's really crazy is he's calling law works of the flesh. He, this would be uber offensive if you were Jewish. <laughs> He's putting law on the same side of the equation as sexual immorality, drunkenness, idolatry, witchcraft. Just read later in Galatians. He says these are the works of the flesh. In fact, in Philippians 3.3, he calls the law flesh. But listen, the point is, look, guys, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? What's the point? The point is the same way we started is the same way we finish. Okay? And this is problematic because a lot of times you see people getting saved in church, then they come to church, and then what do we do? Whether explicit or implicit, here's the 101 Christian rules. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang with those who do, <laughs> whatever. So... Why? The question is, the question they had is, now that we're under the new covenant, how do you do righteousness? Because they define righteousness in terms of doing law. So what now? If, and what they were doing, saying, okay, look guys, now that you've been come to salvation, this is how you maintain righteousness. You get circumcised. Oh, okay. Someday I'm going to have to talk about Galatians because I, I'm trying to... I, I want to go on to this. But the point is, this is so important for our Christian walk. We finish the same way we began, by the Spirit. That's it. Anything beyond having the Spirit to maintain salvation is slavery. It's slavery. Okay? It's not, okay, now that you're saved, do these 101 things, and that's how you be righteous. No. What Paul's whole argument is here, you know how you be righteous? The same way you started, by the Spirit. He produces, he is sufficient to produce God's righteousness in you. The whole argument is leading to that. Go to Galatians 5. That's exactly what he's saying. Look, guys, I say, look, Galatians 5, 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the primary imperative. Two verses later, those who are led by the Spirit are not under law. And then verse 22, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What? What's he saying? He creates God's character in you. He produces righteousness in you. In fact, Galatians 5, 6, it says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know what two of the fruit of the Spirit are? Love and faith. Same words few verses later. In other words, 
The Holy Spirit produces that. And that's the only thing that counts. He produces us into Christ's image. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's transforming us from glory to glory into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's the Spirit who produces it into us. Not works of the law. That, Paul is death on works of the law. You read this, he puts a curse on people who are preaching this stuff. It's serious. Just read the first few verses of Galatians. He actually puts a curse formula on people who are preaching, look, if you're, that, that you have to do law in order to be righteous. It's crazy. The Spirit is key to walking in the, Christ, the Christian walk. That's it. Because he's the one who produces. That's why it says in Romans 8, 14, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. It's all by the Holy Spirit. All by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. It says, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong to Christ. That's the only thing, the only identifying marker of whether you're saved or not is the Spirit. That's it. Nothing else. The Spirit. Crucial for salvation. Crucial for our walk with the Lord. Nothing else. And that's so crucial because we try and put people under law, whether implicit or explicit. We've got to stop doing that. We've got to stop doing that. It's all by the Spirit. Galatians 3, 4. Look at this. Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? <laughs> He's talking about their experience of the Spirit. Some translations translate it suffered. He is not talking about suffering. He's talking about experience, okay? The, the Greek word there refers to experience, and it can be translated suffering, but nothing in the book is referring to suffering. He's contextually talking about the experience of the Spirit, okay? Just so you know. But the point is, what I want to show you, notice how Paul's argument is progressing by these questions. They're rhetorical questions that make it, oh yeah, you're right, ouch. <laughs> Look, verse 2, he begins by appealing to their conversion. Did you receive the Spirit? Verse 3 and 4, he appeals to all their experience of the Spirit since their conversion. Remember, right? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? You fools. <laughs> this is Paul talking now. And then he says, have you experienced so much in vain? Like, who would, <laughs> who would argue this way in contemporary Christianity? Like, talking about making a theological appeal to their encountering the Holy Spirit. Because again, you can't argue with an encounter. That's what Paul's doing. But look at this. Then he puts it in the present tense in verse 5. So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Present tense. This is a present tense. Supply you with the Spirit. So the ongoing life of the Spirit, he's saying right here and now, is God doing this and working miracles? Look how normal it was with them. Miracles. The, the experiential dimension of the Spirit was so normal. He's saying, guys, is, the Holy, is God supplying you the Spirit and working miracles because you're doing law? <laughs> and again, they're like, uh, no, you're right, Paul. My goodness. But anyway, so, so my point is Paul's, First appeals to the visible, dramatic, dynamic experience of the Spirit. You can't argue with that. And what's funny, like I said, New Testament theology. Look at most commentaries in Galatians. Basically skim over those first five <laughs> scriptures in Galatians 3 when that is the crux of the book. And the whole rest of the book is based off of that. Then, uh, I'll go into that someday. Not only when you were converted, that's the key. Not only when you, so it's not born again, then hey, drudge it out in the, in the trenches on your own until Jesus returns, which is what a lot of people believe. No, the Spirit empowers you to live the life of Christ that he calls us to. So crucial, okay? So it's not only when you're converted, but in the meantime and the ongoing life of the church, present tense. That's Paul's argument. And everything in Galatians hinges on that experience of the Spirit beginning in chapter 3 to the end of the letter, and someday we'll go more into that. But what I, I, I kind of already asked this, but what I want to ask, how many do you know would use this today as an argument? Like in the church. And like I was saying earlier, a lot of people criticize people like Wimber and even uh, people in Catch the Fire because it's like you're, you're encountering God, then you're trying, to ex you're trying to use scriptures to justify that weird encounter I don't like. This is what hypothetically what people are saying. And what Paul's saying is, hey, guys, actually, remember that encounter you had? 
That proves this theology. Right? It's backwards how we have it. And we actually get criticized for that. Like people. When you try and appeal to experience. My point is the early church's theology and experience of the Spirit was so different from ours that Paul could do this and it was normal. And he knew he had them right here. And, and nowadays, we would just appeal to different kinds of theological truths, right? Okay? But he appeals to the experience. Not just past, but present experience of the Spirit in their lives in the church. And this difference between them and us lies in the Scripture. And this is how we get back to Acts Christianity. <laughs> and we don't want to just go back in the past we want to go, we're, we're supposed to former glory is, or the latter glory is better than the former glory. Apparently we're supposed to be walking even greater than Acts. That was the foundation. And we look back on Acts with envy. Oh, why isn't it like that these days? Partly this is why. Theology, expectation, spirit doesn't do that. It all died with the apostles. All these heresies, really. This is why theology and spending some time on this really matters. Because I'm hoping we can build a foundation so when the Holy Spirit comes crazy... Crazy is what I'm believing for. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Like Toronto times 100 is what the prophecies are. That's what the prophecies are. Crazy. People like, uh, I, I forget his name, Robinson. Charles, Charlie Robinson, thank you. God told Charlie Robinson he would be offended with the next revival. Charlie Robinson being offended. Those who are laughing get it because he, he does really offensive things and God, and he's seen it all. He was with Todd Bentley. Come on. He was with Todd Bentley and God, he was surprised when God told him I would get offended. That must be crazy. Okay. So it's important to have a theological grid because if not, then people will get wacky and get off. But, but hopefully we'll have a foundation. So when that happens, like, oh, this is normal. And then we can help people. Look at the Bible. <laughs> this was normal, okay? That's what I'm hoping. Anyway. But look at this. I, I gave you scripture before. I just want to show you. This isn't some isolated scripture. Okay? Look at this. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5. Look at what Paul says. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with what? The demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith not, might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Right? We've made it all about human wisdom. And the problem with that, if we don't appeal to encounters, is the person who's way better th at arguing than I am will argue you out of your faith. If, you're if your faith's predicated on arguments, which is what we do. Right? That's the issue with apologetics these days is we try and come up with a rational explanation for the cross. Hey, guys, I'm more rational than this atheist. So, you, you know, it's just a rational decision. You know, what's so funny about that is Paul in Corinthians rebukes them and says, guys, guess what? The cross is foolishness to the world. Why are you trying to make it logical? It's not. It is not logical. The cross is foolishness. A crucified Messiah is the ultimate oxymoron. It's the ultimate craziness. The craziest thing you can think of. And God's foolishness is, is way more wise than human wisdom is what he says. Trying to make it rational. Oh, it's just not going to happen. But that's why power encounter is so important. Because guys, our faith is not rational. But you know what's going to keep people in the faith is dramatic, experiential power encounters with the Holy Spirit, which was normal Christianity. Not quiescent, let's argue you into the kingdom. No way. What, was, what did Jesus say? You guys who are here in the kingdom, what's the only instructions he gave his disciples? The 12, the 72? What did he say? Preach this one sentence. The kingdom of God is here. That's it. Then what does he say? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse the lepers. Proclamation, demonstration. One sentence. Kingdom of God is here. Now demonstrate that by healing them and showing them that the kingdom of God is here. So crucial. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. The Great Commission in Matthew 28. 
Make disciples of all nations, not converts. God is not so much concerned about populating heaven. He's more concerned about creating a people for his name. And that's the offensive thing I was going to say earlier, by the way. But it's true. It's so true. And we need to reshift our focus to what God is focusing on. Making disciples, not converts. Find one scripture where it says to make a convert. I can't think of any. Maybe I'm wrong. Cannot think of any. Disciples. And you know what he says? Commanding them, to teaching them everything I commanded you. Which is what? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out lepers. That's what he commanded them to do. Not just moral imperatives, which are also important. But they, again, they're by the Spirit. Key point. My conviction is that we need to recapture this experience reality both individually in our personal lives and corporately if we're going to be truly effective as God's people in the world. I got good news and bad news. The bad news is we live in a pagan culture that is so post-Christian it's not even funny. And you might say, what's the good news? The good news is that's exactly the culture that was present when Paul the Apostle was preaching. We might as well say we live in Corinth. Because you look at the sexual immorality and the craziness, it's crazy. Guys, you know it. It's crazy. Things that are happening now are absolutely crazy. 20 years ago, people were like, that's crazy. And now it's normal, and you're crazy if you don't agree with the crazy things the culture's doing. It's so backwards. How are we going to reach this pagan culture? Not by words of human wisdom, but by a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So their faith doesn't rest on logical arguments that might have worked in the modern age, but we are post-postmodern, and that's not going to work anymore. People want genuine encounters of the Holy Spirit. People are so hungry for spiritual encounters, and we're trying to argue them into it with logic? No way. That is not going to work anymore. That, that might have worked 50 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe. Not anymore. We got to get back to biblical Christianity, power encounters, Holy Spirit come, bam. Now argue with that because you can't. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you can tell where my passion is. Oh, all right. <laughs> You know, I'm just going to end there. <laughs> I'm going to end on, end on a high note. Because I was going to do the application, but I think I just did. Right? Maybe some other day I'll do the application. But guys, I hope that through this, you're okay, yes. <laughs> this is so relevant to our church. You know what I'll do? I'm going to show you what I'll do. Look at this. Uh, the six things I have listed. That if you were here at the beginning of the year, I did two messages on our historical DNA. Who are we as a church? You remember that? As a movement, went all the way back to the Jesus movement, talked about vineyard, catch the fire, all the stuff. Okay? And then I talked about the unique expression, catch the fire, Ottawa has, because God's called us for a unique purpose. We're a unique expression. Okay? So, of course, we have the values of our DNA of catch the fire. But in, in, on top of that, there's something specific God's called us to. And though this list isn't exhaustive by any means, we could probably have 20 things up there. This is, these are super crucial that influence our goals and our decisions, okay, as a church. And I hope you can see, I was going to give you all these scriptures and you know me. <laughs> but I won't. I'm just going to give you the list and show you. I hope you can see how crucial the, all six of these are, how Holy Spirit is so crucial to every single one of them. Absolutely crucial, okay? So just, oh, uh, the six. Let's see. Just a couple up. <laughs> Sorry. I'll just talk. Thank you so much. Jennifer is amazing. She does PowerPoint like every week almost. Thank you, Jennifer. Our priority is the one I'm starting on. Our main priority is to be a resting place for the Lord, period. As a church. That's it. Everything else flows out of that. And I want to tell you what. That is our mandate as a new covenant church. Okay? To be a temple of the Holy Spirit. I was going to show you a bunch of scriptures on that, but I'll do that someday. We are called to be as a temple of the Holy Spirit, hosting his presence, because the God's presence came back with Christ. And that's who we're called to be, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a resting place for God, period. Okay? But, 
Oh, can you go back one? We are also called to be a community that highly values worship and prayer. Now, of course, every church does, but I'm talking premium, high-priority worship prayer. Uh, back one. <laughs> there we go. That one, that one, that one. Thank you, Jennifer. You're awesome. Highly, now, I'm telling you what. I was going to give you a bunch of scriptures. But we pray, we worship by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, 19. Know what the will of the Lord is. What is it? Don't be drunk on wine, but what? Be filled in the Spirit, by the Spirit. That's God's will. Be filled by the Spirit, how? By singing psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, capital S. Same thing in Colossians 3. But guess what? It doesn't end there. Uh, Philippians 3, 3. We worship God by the Spirit. Okay? John 4. What does he say? These are true worshipers who the Father seeks. Those who worship in Spirit, capital S, and truth. We're supposed to worship by the Spirit. It's the same with prayer. Ephesians 6, 18. Pray all the time with all kinds of prayers and requests. Okay? What does it say? Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Jude 20, same thing. Build yourself up in your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. He's the one. <laughs> worship, prayer, Holy Spirit. Community people will fully embrace word in the Spirit. That goes without saying. Oh, someday. <laughs> But that's a priority. There's a false dichotomy in the church that word people are not spirit people and spirit people are not word people. Guys, it's both. <laughs> Fully, 100% word and spirit. Guess who wrote the Bible? The spirit. Well, he wrote it through people. But it's the spirit. In the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the void and God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. The Spirit and the Word go together all the time. That's why when the Spirit came back, what was the sign that he came back in Acts 2? People speaking tongues. And your sons and daughters will prophesy by the Spirit. Because when the Spirit, when people are, the Spirit comes, people are speaking. The Word and the Spirit go together. Anyway, a place where people come to encounter God. That is our heart. That's what we were birthed in as a movement. Revival. Crazy encounters. And this is biblical Christianity. I just showed you at, uh, Galatians 3, 1 to 5. People come to encounter God. That's what we want. Main priority. Keeping with our roots. That's what we burn for. People who live and walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 18. And a community of people who are diligently seeking and believing God for more. Because there's always more. And in John 3, 34, I believe it says, God gives his Spirit without limit. No limits. So why not ask for more? And believe for the crazy. Acts too crazy. Acts too crazy. And I'm going to end on this question, and this is a question I want us to always ask. Last slide, please, Jennifer. Oh. I'll ask you the question. This is something I want us to always ask, and I've asked this before, and I'm going to ask it again. What would church look like if we built the church to attract the Holy Spirit instead of just trying to attract people? And that's the question I always want us to ask. What would church look like if we, our main priorities, do you know what it would look, if our main priority is to attract the spirit, guess what? We'd have more people than we can handle. Just look at Toronto. <laughs> Point in case. 120 people, whatever it was, church. Small, bigger than us, but pretty small church. Holy Spirit comes, millions. Same with that, Acts 2. Why were 3,000 people saved? Crazy wind, fire, crazy looking drunk, crazy tongues. Crazy looking. And Peter says, guess what? This is what this is and blah, blah, blah. And 3,000 people saved in one day. Spirit comes, craziness, people will come. They will. Not that people coming is our priority. Our priority is resting place for God. But I'm telling you, what would, and that's the question, and it's a good question we always have to ask. What would church look like if that was our main priority? Holy Spirit coming. Amen. So, Father, we just thank you so much for your spirit. God, we burn for this. Oh, Lord, thank you for how you've moved in this movement in 94 and beyond. But, God, we know there's more. You promise us there's more. 
You say there's no limit and we believe there's no limit and we're asking you for the no limits. We're asking that we would be a people who would embrace your spirit like no other people. That we would be humble because you say this is where my resting place will be. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Lord, let us be a people who tremble at your word, who are so humble that you say you give grace to the humble, resist the proud, that your grace would come beyond all we can ask or imagine. Lord, we just ask that we'd be a people of your presence, a temple of the Holy Spirit in pagan Ottawa. That we would be a temple, that we would be the alternative to the pagan ways that are happening right before us and that people would be so attracted to you because of your tangible, dynamic, experiential presence in our midst. Help us get back to biblical Christianity. Oh, help us get back to that, Lord. It's not lost. Help us to recalibrate our theology so that we can embrace this experiential power dynamic of your presence and your spirit being with us in our midst. So we won't miss it. Let's not, help us not to relegate you to a still small voice, but to, to expect the unexpected, the impossible, the hundred times more than Toronto, whatever it looks like. We want it, God. Help us be that people. Thank you for what you've done in our midst. We're so grateful for all the ways you've encountered people thus far. But Lord, we want more. We thank you that you say in Luke eleven thirteen that those, that if we're evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, that how much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we're asking, Lord. Oh God, we're asking for more. Help us and not, <laughs> help us be a wineskin so we can actually embrace the more and not to, not to squander it. But Lord, trust us with more because we just want it so bad and we're just so hungry for your presence. Oh, thank you, Father, for all the amazing ways you're encountering us and that your spirit is always present. But Lord, we're just thanking you for more, whatever that looks like. Help us embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. It was